eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. This is the 32nd lesson uh, on the eight elements. We're still on element five. This is element five L, which counting up, I think L is the 12th. And so uh, this is the 12th uh, thing we've looked about at with regard to what is called Christology. So we're introducing the subject of Christology. And this Christology is just uh, the study of Christ. And the reason we're looking at it, and the reason it comes fifth of eight, is that really everything in these eight uh, leads into Christ and comes out of Christ. Everything is centered in Christ. And so, um, honestly, to do a whole series just on who Jesus Christ is, we could go for years and never exhaust the material. In fact, that's what John uh, says in his gospel in John 5, 21. If everything that Jesus did, not, not just everything he is, I mean, that, that would be a part of, you know, Christology starts with everything he is, was, and always will be. But if we just, John is saying, if we just talked about everything he did in his earthly ministry, not even the books, uh, not even the world could contain all the books. So I guess that we're in good company that we're on the 12th week of studying about Jesus. So um, I'm not going to reiterate much uh, on Roman numerals 1 and 2. The eight essentials are on Roman numeral 1. Uh, you know, Roman numeral 2, the first four elements, we, we uh, basically said that part of what we're, we're going to be talking a little bit more today about a thing that people are calling reductionist Christianity that began shortly after the Civil War with the rise of the evangelical fundamentalist debate and has con uh, continued to be reduced, 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 reduced for probably 150 straight years now. And part of that reductionist Christianity is to reduce the gap between God and man, thereby eliminating the need for a rescuer. And I am trying very hard not to ever say Jesus is his Savior anymore, uh, even though that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, that, that he gave us real salvation and uh, not theoretical salvation. But, um, you know, the, the more you see the true news, which is actually bad news, the more you'll see our need for the good news, which is also true news. And uh, the whole trend of both the things in the secular world and its philosophies and sociologies and psychologies and the whole trend in the church has been to reduce that gap uh, in, in for 150 years. And uh, when God starts ho helping you see the depth of our depravity, the, the strength of what the world system is and, and see it more completely, the reality of Satan and his demons then you will know that you can't just try a little harder, get a little churching up, go to a therapist, read some self-help books, which are the, probably the number one or two, I think number two type of selling book in Christian bookstores. The Escapist Eschatology is the number one type of, both of which are decidedly non-Christian in their orientation and philosophy, uh, which uh, is common itself on the state of things. But uh, once you... Uh, once you start seeing that gap, then 1 Timothy 2 says, talks about God our Savior who desires all men to be rescued and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
The more you see the gap and the more you understand about Christ, the more you realize there is no other possible solution. There's not even something heading on the right highway. And so uh, we looked at from uh, element 5A through K, there's a list there under Roman numeral 3 of the things we looked at. We're not going to review that because I don't want to use up my precious 40 minutes on that. So you can get the uh, podcast or CDs if you can. We still do CDs if people request them. Uh, most people listen to the podcast. And, and thankfully, uh, both John's and my podcast are getting listened to by larger audiences. So that's, uh, that's encouraging. Um, so today we're going to actually look at, uh, continue the theme we've been talking about called the ministry of Jesus. And I think we've been on that part of, the, of Christology for one, two, three, or four. This is probably the fourth week on that, I think. So uh, we're going to look at what, what Jesus' ministry was. We looked at how he came making announcements or proclamations. Uh, we, we looked at uh, how uh, his model for making disciples we, in, in the second week on Christology, in the, or on the ministry of Jesus, that is, in the, within Christology. And then we looked at how he built his covenantal family or his church. So today we're going to look at one, another aspect of the ministry of Jesus. And I'm, uh, just to get some alliteration going, I called it miraculous emancipation made manifest. <laughs> just throw in some M. But you could call it real rescue from real enemies. It's probably actually less precise than the uh, more alliteration title. But today, in a lot of ways, we have reduced things to somewhat of a theoretical uh, salvation. I have embraced the right ideas. I pray the right formula sinner's prayer. And there may not be much going on in my life that demonstrates uh, a new birth, that demonstrates life in Christ coming forth, uh, that demonstrates a conversion or whatever. But I've punched this ticket to heaven, and by golly, I'm going to hang on. And in some cases, I might even go sit in a church pew and get entertained uh, by the professional entertainment weekly or something like that. And uh, unfortunately, there's just a whole lot of that today. And so uh, what I want to look at uh, in the ministry of Christ is that he really saved people right then, right now, from real insurmountable, in the human sense, enemies. Nothing is too impossible to God. Nothing is insurmountable to God. But everything that he's rescuing you from is insurmountable to you and me. So um, um, so as we look at uh, this, the, uh, it, what we call the reductionist gospel, I want to start with just two things. A lot, of, a lot of what people think of salvation is, is that Jesus came to preach forgiveness and that Christians preach forgiveness and the book of Acts preaches forgiveness and it's all just about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is really important, as we're going to see. But that would be like, uh, I'll pick on John Gray since he knows I love him. That would be like saying, John Gray is a professional nurse. That's true, isn't it? However, that Leah might want you to throw in that he's an excellent husband. Daniel, as he gets a little older, might say, he's my dad. Uh, I would want to say, he's one of my best friends. Uh, you might want to say, this memory of John and that memory, certainly his mom would want to weigh in on some ideas about who John is. And 
therefore, eventually, we might even get a more complete picture. That is so huge. And so I'm not saying the gospel is not forgiveness, but I, that's like saying that uh, the tip of the iceberg is the iceberg. Um, what was that famous movie about 15 years ago with the big shift of sun? The Titanic. That, the Titanic learned that uh, the, there's more to the iceberg than the tip. Many of people have learned that lesson. So uh, the other thing that we have changed the gospel to being is not salvation from yourself, from sin, from the world, from uh, in, into, you know, we, if, frankly, there's still some that hold salvation from this and that, uh, but it's much more than salvation from hell. We've made it about heaven and hell, which is actually, again, a tip of the iceberg issue. It's not a foundational issue. It's a natural outworking of a trajectory uh, toward God, when, when you're recreated in Christ Jesus, when you're reconciled, when you're brought back into relationship, if as you're matured and perfected and completed in Christ, heaven will be uh, an inevitable outcome. And for those who are not going through that process, there is a hell, and it's become very popular to deny hell and so forth. It, it always has been. There's always been groups that have done that and so forth. It's now there's a little modern twist to it, but it's the same old thing with a little bit different wrapping paper. And, uh, but it's not all about that. In fact, I would not even argue that's foundational, more consequential. And so, um, so, you know, hell is real. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other individual in the Bible. He uses the word 11 times. And he uses other words like the wrath of God and so forth uh, in other ways of saying the same. That's important, but we need to go beyond this if we're going to take a step toward uh, restoring holistic salvation in, the, in understanding what Jesus' ministry was. Now, before I lose the train of the thought of being saved from all these things, John and I had an excellent discussion on this. You know, uh, we weren't talking about this particular word, but this bigger concept. The, the word repentance, I, you know, we have a teaching that's, that has eight uh, statements about what repentance is. The last one I always say, I saved the last one, to, to, uh, for the best one for last. And it is, it's not just a turning from. Salvation, the ministry of Jesus, reconciliation, redemption, is to be restored not just into all that you were created to be, but all you're being recreated to be. It's, it's more than just restoring the Garden of Eden. It's building something beyond the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden becoming the city. So part of Jesus' ministry is to take you to places you cannot see outside of looking at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You are becoming someone you couldn't recognize without his help. And so it's more about, it's not just, it's equally about what you're being saved or delivered or taken into as much as what you're being coming from. And it's uh, not so much about just what's happening from, 
from what you're coming from and what you're going to, but it's who we have come from and where we are coming to. God has always intended to populate the earth with a people for his own possession, his own special treasure. The church will never be the kingdom of God, but the church is the primary agent of the kingdom of God. And, and the kingdom is to be constantly expanding into us and through us. So uh, let's look at uh, just a couple definitions before we get started. So I want to look at the words ruamai and sozo. Now everyone knows sozo. John and Emily uh, do a ministry that's called a sozo. If you don't know what that is, you should see them. Most Many of you could use being taken through that, and it would be very helpful. We, in fact, hope that in time other people will get the training for that. We think it's an excellent start on uh, deliverance, inner healing, uh, breaking legal chains that, that the enemy has in your life and so forth. And a few of you have already uh, experienced that. And uh, so uh, some of us know that, but uh, according to uh, Vine's uh, Dictionary of New Testament Words, those two words are pretty much the same. He draws a few nuances than some verses of difference, but for the most part, they actually mean pretty much the same thing. And they mean to save, to rescue, to deliver, to heal. That's actually part of the meaning of both words. To liberate or emancipate, uh, to emancipate means to be to set free from slavery. The reason that the children of Israel narrative is so powerful is because we were all slaves. And a slave doesn't have the choice to just do this or that or go own property or go this, make this decision or marry this wife or go this direction or so forth. And you were, the Bible says we were held captive to do Satan's will. And he set us free and brought us out of the domain or the chains or the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in, in spiritual understandings of the, the kingdom that include physical understandings, we're not, we're not dualist, but in a complete understanding of a kingdom, it has a lot to do with who, is, who you're in fellowship with and who you're growing in relationship with. When you don't know the Lord, you're actually in fellowship with a power called sin, and it's growing in your, in conforming your character and your life and your thinking patterns and your goals and your motivations to darkness, sin, demons, the world's way of thinking. When you are progressing in Christ and, and when you've been reborn and you're progressing in sanctification and so forth, it's all about the king being formed inside of you. So salvation means to set free, liberate, preserve from real enemies. It's, it's holistic, it's manifested now, and it's total. It's not just being forgiven. That's a necessary ingredient, but I'd hate to have you say, I'm baking you a cake and I got, I got a dozen eggs. And that's the only ingredients I picked up. <laughs> I like eggs, but that would be more scrambled eggs, not a cake. <laughs> so, um, in that, in, uh, it wouldn't be that egg, it's not something good, but it's certainly not uh, something you're baking. 
So um, that that's important. Then the word manifest. Uh, you know what theologians talk about the manifest presence of God and so forth. And uh, John starts his gospel in the 14th verse by saying, and the word of God was manifested, became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. We could see it in the physical realm. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. In 1 John, he goes, the whole point of the first chapter is he writes this so that we may have fellowship, and indeed their fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And all of our fellowship is to be in the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And as he's waxing eloquent about this, he breaks all the rules of mixed metaphors and has total bad grammar for four, four uh, verses. And John it was a master uh, with words, so he is very intentional, because he's saying, wow, what we beheld, what we saw, what our, what our hands handled, what we tasted, what we, you know, know happened with, the, with what was manifested, this is what we're going to proclaim to you. And we're doing this so your joy may be complete, and we're doing this so you might have fellowship with us and with the, you know, with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and uh, he gets all excited and says it three or four different ways that all kind of scrambled eggs together. Guess we got a scrambled eggs thing going on. <laughs> Don't go back to the French Revolution. You can't you can't make an omelet unless you break a few eggs. Um, Robespierre. Uh, so he he's saving us. We teach a lot in this church on when we actually when we did uh, essential element number two, man. We looked at man's three insurmountable enemies, and I've already commented on that. But you know, pray to God that God would help you see the depth and power of the enemies. What? Am I preaching negativity? Am I preaching not health and prosperity or something? The more you see the depth, reality, and power of the enemies, the more you'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.20 says where sin abounds or is made greater, uh, that grace abounds all the more. Grace triumphs... Um, Grace triumphs uh, uh, every, every, every one of the three insurmountable enemies. And it's very much like, uh, <laughs> tell a story that probably Larry won't remember, but Larry and his family, I don't know if they still have it, but had an A-frame cabin down in Lake Norris, Tennessee. Your brothers or somebody still have it. But um, we, we were on the men's retreat with 30 or 40 guys down there, and Larry was cooking flaming yams with bacon on them, and everyone was boating, and and a poker game broke out, and I uh, hope I probably shouldn't put this on the CD with legalistic Christians out there. Low stakes, <laughs> very low stakes, uh, quarters I think or something. But somehow that that toward the end of the game, because we uh, people started doing a thing, well let's leave the pot in for a while, and somehow there got to be a pot that was around forty dollars, which would probably be enough to buy pizza for not that that much bigger group. But uh, anyway. You know, not but but forty dollars when you're not a gambler like myself, that seems like a big pot. And I, I remember I had this full house, and uh, you know, uh, I assume facts, not in evidence. Lawyer would have objected. And you know, it all went around and it got down to me and this brother named Jerry Robinson. And and so he 
he called and whatever, and I laid down this full house, and I think it was like Jack's or Queen's High. I was pretty confident it was pretty good, but, uh, and I actually started to rake in the pot. <laughs> and with like 20 or 30 guys standing around, he let me go about halfway pulling the pile in before he laid down a higher full house. And uh, that's, really the, that's really the essence of gr grace just trumps everything. Uh, so let's get into this. Forgiveness and salvation from hell are vital. I'm gonna, but they're also part of larger, a larger, indivisible whole. If you try to separate them, if you try to forgive, separate salvation from uh, from your sins and, and reconciliation from and, and and or hell from the whole gospel. You've negated all of it. It's indivisible. God is one. All truth is one. All truth is inextricably intertwined. So here's, um, uh, I, I figured as long as we were talking about forgiveness, uh, of course, some of the people that I really have in my heart to hear this are not here this morning. It always works that way. So let's hope they listen to the podcast. But every pastor has two pastoral concerns about forgiveness. I always have this. There's nobody that I'm going to minister to or disciple or build a friendship that I'm not going to try over the first few months to address these issues in your life. And I hope as brothers and sisters in Christ, as husbands and wives, I hope as parents of children that you are monitoring these two issues in your kid's spirit and heart and mind. And the first one is if they have forgiven uh, God. We, that's another segue, but uh, you can have unforgiveness in your heart toward God, even though it comes from a perspective of deception. It's still, it's not true, eternal, biblical, spiritual truth reality, but it's your reality. And so it needs to be not only, you need to not only forgive God, but for repent of the many perspectives that got you there. But that's a real phenomenon. You need to receive God's forgiveness, and you must forgive everyone. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Hopefully, we have drilled this concept of reading comprehension into us that you must read the reverse negative. So he's base, and Jesus in this case actually gives us the reverse negative. If you forgive, that's all tied up into God forgiving you. Now, eternal things are not necessarily like dominoes, but they have to, they're inextricably intertwined. God, in order for God to have forgiven you, you have to forgive other people. In order for you to forgive other people, you have to receive God's forgiveness. It's one. John did an excellent job. There's a podcast that goes back two or three years now, but I'm constantly sending people to John's podcast called uh, Forgiveness, Prerequisite for Discipleship. You cannot have unforgiveness in your heart and be a disciple of Jesus. It's a, it's a physical law of the universe. Um. I have had a few uh, friends who went a little too far with their use of psychedelic drugs and so forth, and they thought they could fly off a uh, building. 
But just because they thought they could fly off a building didn't mean they could. So uh, I had some that thought they were God, but that didn't make them God. And so it doesn't matter what hoops of deception you have allowed yourself to go on in your mind that your forgiveness is, your unforgiveness and bitterness is somewhat justified or something. And that's why I, I have a podcast under the summer discipleship stuff this summer, uh, the difference between Americanized cultural humanistic forgiveness right now and true biblical forgiveness. You should really understand the difference of that. And that's, you, that's as foundational as, as having a blueprint for a house. You can't really even get started in this thing without understanding what forgiveness really is and thoroughly walking through forgiving everyone. And if you hear uh, testimonies, Beth's one of them, uh, I, send pe I send people to certain people just to say, talk to them about what learning what true forgiveness did in their life. How much it changed them, their relationship with God, and even began to change their relationships with the rest of their family. You know, I don't want to get too personal here, but I had a nice whole hour long or so discussion with Beth's mom last night who's making great progress in Christ and plans to come and be a part of our community come this summer and is work, work, starting in the process of trying to find a job here and all that move here and uh, you know it all started when Beth was convicted by the Holy Spirit I think when she heard John's message a few years ago and said I need to get in touch with my mom and I need to get get in touch with my dad, and I need to work through this forgiveness thing. It is p powerful. You know, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 talks about a time when men will be this, this, and this, and this, and they'll hold to a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. The power thereof is not just one thing. It's everything to do with the cross, regeneration, uh, the basic princi foundational principles of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. And one of the basic foundational principles is you, you must receive God's forgiveness and you must give forgiveness to everyone. In fact, one of the things you should be crying to God out, and this is one of my regular prayers, God, help me learn to be quick to forgive and slow to anger and resentment and things like this. Help that come into my character. Now, be careful when you pray that. God will send you Officer Devias to give you a speeding ticket. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, remember when you pray for certain things. I, I remember when I was a young Christian, I, I, was, I was going through tough times. And, and uh, I was talking to my mom about it because, you know, at the time I was just coming to Christ and my mom was one of the few Christians I knew and I'm like, why is everything so hard? I thought it was going to get easier after I started walking with the Lord. She goes, you remember you were in that meeting and such and such Bible teacher said, who wants to go as far as God wants with their, raise your hand, stand up. So, you know, you remember you stood up and raised your hand and all that? And she said, that's why everything's so hard. And I'm like, man, I'll never do that again. <laughs> A lot of us are good friends with Wayne McNamara, and his, in our early years, he would pray, Lord, give me more trials. And I would say, no, no, don't pray that. <laughs> I, I never pray that. I, I pray, give me the grace to recognize the trials and to th be thankful in them and to embrace the character you're trying to build, but don't give me more trials. Um, 
All right, so forgiveness is an important thing. In Matthew 18, that whole parable, which we can't really go into, it ends with his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until they should repay all that was owned. Now notice when you read the whole parable, the theme of prison and debt going back and forth throughout the whole parable. Because you cannot repay all that's owed. The first guy owed so much money that no one, a, a laborer cannot make enough money to pay the daily interest on that. So the, the point Jesus is trying to say is what God is forgiving us from is something that, that, it, that you not only couldn't make an inch of progress from, we, are, we were constantly, inevitably having it get worse. We couldn't even come, keep up with the interest. And really, a lot of people come to Christ when the, the bondage of sin, uh, the, the addiction, the whatever, the consequences become so bad that finally we humble ourselves before God and want the help of Christ, hopefully the help of His Word, His Spirit, and His church. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The most loving thing God ever does to us is allows our whole life to start crashing on the rocks of reality. So we go, oh my God, I've got some problems. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a good thing. That's when you took your first step into a larger world, Luke. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, so forgiveness is a huge issue. And with that, I just... I don't want to give a whole teaching on this. I really got to move on. But, you know, I'm always talking to us about the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is always vague. Conviction is about one, two, or three specific steps you should be taking. Condemnation is about your whole life. And, uh, you know, I was actually talking to someone uh, this week whose sister called them to be reconciled. And the sister started with, I'm sorry, I'm such a loser and that you had to be my sister. And wisely, this Christian person responded like, no, we're not going there. Uh, you know, you need to be sorry for specific things you did and actions and attitudes, not just some vague thing about who you are. I always know people aren't understanding the gospel when they talk about all sorts of specific sinful behaviors and go, well, you know that's who I am or how I am or what I, you know, that's, you know, that, that means you're not beginning to see spiritual things yet. You're not beginning to see reality. So make sure you, you get deeply rooted in the gospel. And one of the aspects of that is to understand the difference between true forgiveness and reconciliation and true conviction of sin because condemnation, you can't get overcome guilt that's just rooted in general sense of shame, guilt, etc. You know, you, uh, you, you have to be forgiven of specific things. You have to forgive specific people. You have to, you have to, uh, be challenged in, in a specific, constructive, positive ways to turn, to repent and bear, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance and become a new person. That's important. Moving on, the second issue people make it about is hell. Uh, th at the top of page two, there's a couple other verses about, uh, about, um, well, let's see, I think, I think actually by then we're starting again. I'm sorry, I forgot, I moved some things up late last night. Um, 
so actually, let's note two is toward the bottom of page one, sorry. So rescue from hell, or uh, the Bible talks a lot about the wrath to come. Jesus mentioned wrath once, hell 11 times. Paul mentions wrath a lot more than Jesus, but they're really tied up together. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Three words you should understand there. Wrath is God's specific anger and punishment and chastisement. It involves that. I know that's not popular. I know there's a whole Eastern Orthodox mo uh, movement right now that is, that's all about denying that exists. But it's, it's, the problem is, is that Paul starts his gospel, the very first line in, in his gospel presentation in Romans 1.18, after he summarizes what he's about to say in verses 16 and 17, he says, in verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who trusts, clings to, follows, relies on, believes in Jesus, uh, to the Jew first, also the Greek. Then he starts into what it is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. The whole gospel starts with wrath. It starts with the bad news. And if you deny the bad news, no one's going to want the good news, because why would you? So uh, that's, in, that's huge. So notice that word wrath. The other thing is notice that the word obey the son is means the same as believe. That's why I just, I never even say believe anymore. Wayne Grudem even argues in his chapter on, on conversion to, to drop the word <laughs> because we've, we've gutted it of meaning. So I use trust in, cling to, rely on, follow, become a disciple of, obey. Paul starts Romans 1, 5, and ends Romans at Romans 15 as he's getting ready before his final salutations by saying that, uh, that he was given the commission to bring about the obedience of faith. True faith has results. True faith is relational, and it comes out of not hoping or taking a leap. It comes out of knowing, Hebrews 11, 1, because God has revealed himself in the Scripture in the person and face of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit in such a way that you've been overcome by the revelation and, 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 are, and you're not disobedient to it. That's why Paul was able to say, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision because how could I be? It's all consuming. The fire's all through the bush, yet the bush isn't burned. So, that's important. Um, Romans 5, 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Moving over, Ephesians 5, 6, let no one desire deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sins of disobedience and so forth. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 uses the word rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, let me suggest to you that God's wrath includes hell and more besides. Because God is eternal, and it also has to do with a condemnation of death working throughout your whole being and character that that's, is in the here and now. You're not going to go to, you're going to, hell is just a trajectory of, the, of a life lived, lost. And whoever is not obeying the Son, whoever doesn't believe in the Son, even today, the wrath of God abides on them. 
fallen men are hopelessly under judgment. That's why uh, our second motivation in evangelism would be compassion. Our first is our love for God and our declaration of his kingdom and obedience to his telling us to do it. We are, when we get that backwards, we really screw up the gospel. So, that being said, I've got uh, 10 minutes. I'll probably cheat a little, as I usually do, uh, to, uh, to talk about how salvation must uh, include all kinds of things that accompany forgiveness in the Bible. Wish I had 80 minutes to talk about this message. Um, so, these are some other things that we're going to list uh, four, four categories of other things that must be inextricably intertwined to forgiveness. In other words, you can't separate them out. If you don't have these things, you don't have forgiveness. If you don't have these things, you don't have deliverance from hell. And we've tried to separate that out in our, in our dualistic Christianity, but it can't be. It's just a deception. It's a fantasy. It's like waking up from a dream and, uh, and go, glad that was just a dream. Uh, so, uh, the, the, the concept of heresy, which is a big concept in the, in the New Testament, all heresies actually take a, a truth of God and don't ban balance them with their counteractive uh, divine tension op opposing truth. They're believing in one God but not believing in the Trinity, or believing in the Trinity and not believing in one God, believing in the humanity of Christ but not in the deity of Christ, or so forth. All truth have a has a counterbalancing tension in it, and, it's, and, and you have to hold them simultaneously by the, by the revelation of God, and they're seemingly on one level, level illogical and paradoxical. That's one of the weaknesses of Western theologies. We've got to try to get everything to an exact formula that's explainable and it's just revealed in Christ and it's revealed in scripture and it's illuminated to you by the Holy Spirit and that's just it and I really can't explain the Trinity that well after 41 years but we have to know it <laughs> and all of life is based on it it's the matrix for community marriage everything so uh, understand that about heresy if you have forgiveness and deliverance from hell and so forth without these things, you don't actually have anything. Just deception. And therefore, if you embrace that kind of gospel, the church, which is meant to be the pillar and support of the truth, actually becomes the lead voice in the deception. Which is where we're at in a lot of ways today. And I say that knowing full well that I desire nothing more than to see but the body of Christ someday healed, reconciled, worked together. You know, John and I belong to ministerial associations, and Jason can't always go because he's working and stuff, and we met with a group of pastors this week that we're working with to start try to start another association of, of pastors in the Dayton area that's a, a local branch of a national movement called the Gospel Coalition, and we'll see what God will do with that meeting, but um, you know, we want to we serve and find one another. We're going to end our meeting today with uh, giving an giving a award to a guy named Bob Timer who goes to a church a block away. And I talked to his pastor this week about why we want to honor Bob Timer because he's the best member of our church that's not a member of our church. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Bob Timer outserves 80% of the people in our church in our church without actually belonging to our church. And uh, he's an amazing young man. And uh, so, um, 
truth and tension. The first thing is deliverance. Uh, I'm running out of time, so you can read the verses that I've listed there for yourself. I want to just point out a few things about how to interpret them. First of all, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John in the in Revelation, the the five Johannine books, five books written by John, they don't emphasize a lot about demons. They emphasize Jesus' cosmic triumph over Satan and all the universal forces of evil. In fact, the only time the word demons are used in the Gospel of John was when the Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, and certain uh, people in the culture were claiming Jesus had a demon. <laughs> and that happens twice in the Gospel of John. Uh, good to be in good company, isn't it? Uh, so, uh, if anyone says you have a demon, say, thank you, Jesus. But, uh, you know... Um, the synoptic gospels, uh, which means look at the same way, we've talked a lot about that over the years, so has seven dramatic examples of deliverance. And what happens is the way we read the gospels today, sometimes that's all we see. But here's the problem. The rest of those verses I tried to emphasize are not the verses about a dramatic encounter, but just the verses that say that he healed them all, and that he cast out demons out of many. Uh, that there were demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. He healed all the demoniacs in a crowd. So if you really think it through, about a quarter at least of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons out of multitudes of people. So I know we're all Western and post-enlightenment and natural-minded and unbelieving in, in our culture, but th th you have to deal with that. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, that is in a, in a culture more godly than our own. He cast out demons out of thousands of people. Where did all those demons go? Real salvation, uh, you know, and this happens a lot. Uh, sometimes when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, it actually begins to open a door for you to, the, to under, experiencing the glory and the power of God. And sometimes you begin in one way or another to be more aware of the reality of the enemy, his kingdom, and the nature of demons. Sometimes that happens just like it happened in the ministry of Christ when he came into public situations because of the power of the Holy Spirit that he was filled with in, in unmeasured ways. Uh, the demons freaked out. Demons are like bats in a cave. Satan's strategy is to be so dormant that you underestimate the power of God the person, ministry, and reality of the Holy Spirit, the reality of demons and spiritual warfare, he wants you not thinking any of that's that important. And when you start to encounter it, and you, he can't hide there anymore, then he quickly moves to the opposite strategy and goes, boo, I'm bigger than you think, and I'm so bad. And then you, uh, be, at first might be like, oh my God. But then you start to read the Bible, and you start to seek the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and you start to realize, you're not so bad. Like in Rocky, <laughs> you ain't so bad, you ain't so bad. And then you beat the crap out of him. That's, you, you, need, you need the demons, uh, and they're a gift of God because you need to beat the crap out of them. Yeah, and uh, that's part of your sanctification, part of your deliverance, part of salvation. Healing. Just look at all the verses above about deliverance. Jesus healed. We see dramatic examples in the Bible, but Jesus healed thousands of people, even of their colds. 
Jesus healed people. Reconciliation. We, forgiveness is beyond, is be number three there on point C, halfway down the page. Reconciliation, adoption, covenant, membership, all these concepts. Forgiveness is unto reconciliation, and reconciliation is right relationship. You know, a husband and wife who don't speak much to each other and say, I forgive you and I still love you, but we're not going to, we're just, you You have your TV in your area, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll have my area. You know, that's not reconciliation. Reconciliation implies a restored relationship. And as we pointed out, it's more than his restoring his, your relationship to what it was, but it's being restored to all, everything that it's eternally intended to be. In other words, real reconciliation with God, real reconciliation in marriage, that's why God gives us the mystery of marriage, Ephesians 5 and all that, is to have a better relationship all the time. If you're really experiencing God's salvation, your marriage will be getting better. So everything will be getting better in terms of relationships. Adoption. Yeah, we were, we were illegitimate children. We were lost. We were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. But we've been rescued into the commonwealth of Israel. That's why you can't be an attender at a church. You know, I, I get very uneasy with people who don't express commitments by missing a lot, not tithing or giving, not letting anyone know when you're going to be missing and why, or not having any sense of belonging or ownership. You know, you can, you know, like when, when a bunch of guys show up to rake leaves every Saturday or whatever, they're saying, I'm an owner here. You know, part of, you know, sometimes I'll be trying to encourage some people that you need to partake of a little bit more than the Lord's Day. That's maybe the minimum step into the family of God. But the reason why you want, need a little bit more involvement is because you're, you're a member. And you can't be, you know, like a member of the Trimbach family and just send a Christmas card every year. You have to come to dinner and help mow the lawn, and, <laughs> and have your dad run you over when you're playing one-on-one -on -one in the court. Oh, I think it's turned around nowadays. We're getting old. <laughs> you know, that's, the membership has its responsibilities, privileges. It's, uh, it has to involve an interaction. I get very uncomfortable with people who don't tithe, and don't serve, and don't give, and and, and, and want to be ministered to. Part of the whole culture of entitlement is I want, I need, I want, I need. Mistake instead of... Anyway, mistake versus misgive. Um, word pictures, uh, the people of God are listed there. I did that because we, we did about four weeks on that at the Tuesday night Bible study. And I really keep wanting to drill in our heads we don't have the wherewithal right now to have uh, midweek meetings and so forth. We have the Friday night worship. Uh, if you need to experience more of the flow of God's spirit and the glory of God, you ought to go there. It's a fantastic meeting. And, you know, I'm just worried about this, you know, this, we, no one, everyone says you can't break the, 
the 2080 continuum or the 3070, they call it sometimes, where 20 or 30% of the people in the church are really walking with God and really making progress in their spiritual life and really involved and really giving and really serving, and 70 or 80% are not. And it really gets down, you know, like I can tell by who's here at 9.30 versus who's here at 10.30, really. And um, that becomes a concern, not just for you, but for us. It's us you're robbing. It's, it's, we're all in this together. So lastly, there's all kinds of other things that accompany God in salvation. So uh, since I'm out of time, you can read each of those verses and look for the underlying words. You'll see that the knowledge of salvation, healing, forgiveness, our healing and forgiveness are inextricably intertwined. The knowledge of salvation and forgiveness is intertwined. Love and forgiveness is intertwined. Repentance and forgiveness is intertwined. Being freed from all things that you could not be freed from, from the law of Moses. I wish I had time to teach on that in our today's antinomian culture. Having real sight, seeing, being freed from the dominion of Satan. All of that has to be going on if there's actually forgiveness of sins that went on. Next week, we'll continue on the ministry of Jesus and we'll continue... uh, on with the idea that his ministry continues after his resurrection and his ascension and his glorification, and it will continue until he summed up all things in Christ. He is marching on, much like the U.S. military did after D-Day. And I say this analogy all the time, but the war was over after D-Day. And in fact, they had meetings about where they would make Germany surrender. And at what time? And Stalin uh, talked Roosevelt, who Roosevelt thought Stalin was the most wonderful thing since sliced bread and just about worshipped him. And he bought into Stalin's idea that they should meet in Berlin uh, because it was only fair to let the, the, the Soviets, who bore so much loss and death and so forth, have, you know, uh, join in the victory in the headquarters of, of Hitler. When Churchill kept screaming and saying, hey, remember me? <laughs> uh, Let's cut him off at the Ukraine so he won't take over Eastern Europe. And Roosevelt didn't think Churchill had any, well, the rest is history. (laughs) See ya.